So today I want to talk about the value of the mediocre. I recently saw a bunch of ads about Old Navy, and they were basically, you know, a celebration of what they call body equality, and it's basically just a celebration of being overweight. And there's something deep about that, um, and I know this is very taboo or whatever, but there's something about that that marks the end of our civilization, that the ways in which we have thrown away meritocracy is the spirit behind the destruction of our nation. And and again, I know that this is ultimately just an ad. I'm not saying that this is the cause of this feeling. This is merely a symptom of this belief. Um, I also want to mention one other thing. I understand that in this context, in the context of fashion and stuff like that, that this lie is a reaction to a previous lie. The previous lie of the fashion industry that helped create this lie is that only anorexic people should be models. And I remember hearing stories at one point of models that would eat napkins and stuff. And so, and that's really gross uh, in a different way. Um, so that lie feeds this lie. I'm not really going to keep talking about that. That's not the subject matter. That is just kind of a structural uh, representation of where we are. It seems to me that as we lose our common sense, that we lose our ability to understand what is good and decent, that once we killed off our acknowledgement of God, of purity, of the absolute good, that once we can't imagine what that is anymore, that quickly we can no longer see what is decent and okay and worthwhile but not perfect. Let's take this uh, body equality slash fashion example. I myself am very thin. I'm not really the uh, body type of someone who, of a man who would be on uh, the cover of a magazine, right? And that's fine. Um, But every person has Uh, an ideal there you know every body type has an ideal so even though I'm very thin and like I said not necessarily the uh, the ideal of what you think of as uh, uh, you know a man's uh, physique or whatever that's uh, that doesn't bother me because um, there is a way in which the way I look can be ideal or less ideal that there is a way in which I am healthy or unhealthy either too thin is unhealthy or out of shape is not healthy. And that to pretend <clears throat> that those things don't exist is um, setting us into a world of hurt. I want to give you a few more examples of this. Another very curious example is the rise of Fifty Shades of Grey. The generation we live in now, um, you know, a generation which is basically anti-masculine, anti-men in certain regards. Um, That, of course, you know, common people, normal people, are are much more moderate, much more filled with common sense. But I'm just speaking now about the sort of tastemakers of our society. That as our society has become more antagonistic towards masculinity, that that has also seen the rise of this very perverse, very wicked, very disgusting... um, depiction of those traits in something like Fifty Shades of Grey. Why would those things come together? Why would the emasculating 
culture that we live in today sell 150 million copies of a perverted, very genuinely uh, toxic uh, view of masculinity? Why would those people, the people tearing down masculinity in its proper form, why would they go and buy the most depraved version of masculinity? Because humans do have a nature, and the more that you tear down the common good, the common experience of what it means to have a good man or good woman in your life, the more you tear down the decent, the more open you are to the extreme, to the depraved, the more void your life is of common and decent masculinity the more susceptible you are to its most depraved forms. Likewise, the more void your life is of a good and sweet relationship with the woman that you love and care about, the more susceptible you are to pornography. We are most vulnerable to the extremes, to the perversions, when our life lacks the good and the decent and the real. So I want to read a short piece on hierarchy and the value of hierarchy. For him who has established in his heart what is first and what is second, is capable of seeing what is valuable and even what is last. That as we have a coherent structure of what is most important, of what is second most important, that even that which is barely important, we can see the goodness and the importance of the lesser things. And that as we lose our ability to see what is most important, what is second most important, what is third most important, then we also no longer are able to see the beauty of small things. A chapter in a book by Dionysius, appropriately called Hierarchies, illustrates my meaning exactly. He explains that all ranks of angels, princedoms, powers, dominions, down to the least illuminated little angel, may equally be called heavenly powers, because however low a rank an angel may hold, it is still a rank in the other world, in heaven. Why should it not be similar for us on earth? This axiom can be put most forcefully as a vigorous denial of the following passage, which is from Nietzsche. So he's going to read a piece from Nietzsche, which is the exact opposite of this belief. Quote, It is hard to preach this morality of mediocrity, for it can, after all, never admit what it wants and what it is. It must speak of measure and dignity and duty and neighborly love. So Nietzsche believed that beyond good and evil, that there was only power, that ultimately only power should be respected. This is why the Nazis were, uh, you know, were very friendly to his ideas, because they also believed in that. Where the Christian ideal is to make the weak stronger, the Nietzschean ideal is to kill the weak, and the modern ideal is to pretend that the strong do not exist. So here he's going to react to Nietzsche's quote. This paragraph admits that civic virtues are found among ordinary people, but then it invites us to expose the meanness of that virtue and to look on ordinary people with raised eyebrows. My belief says, in contradiction, that mediocrity of this sort, that ordinary things, ordinary people, that decent humanity, 
is not only to be readily admitted in ourselves, but to be cherished in other people. That it is not the opposite of excellence, but the ground from which excellence grows and the end for which excellence goes to work. The true opposite of mediocrity is the monster, that particular willing aberration from ordinary humanity, which is called an intellectual. That as we have lost our ability to see an order, we have lost the good of the small things. We can't see it anymore. Going back to this ad I saw about body equality, I think about much of these things, these ideas which are taking over our culture, are not propagated by evil people scheming to tear down society. They are coping mechanisms. They are people hurt and coping with what it means to be alive. And I think about what situation causes people to be here. Why are we here? What happened to these people that they feel that they have to tear down what is good, best, and not as good in order to feel like they are worth something? Just because you are limited does not mean that you are worthless. This is the idea driving the destruction of meritocracy in the West. The idea that if we are limited, that we are somehow worthless. That if you are not the paper-thin, anorexic model, that you are worthless. And that as a result, let's tear down all ideals. Let's tear down any better that we could have that if there's a better our life could have, a job that's better, a relationship that's better because we worked at it, a life that's better, that if we believe that we have to be something we can't be, then resentment grows. That we have no common sense. That common sense would tell you that you can't be someone that you aren't, but you can be a better happier version of who you are, and then that is good enough. We no longer can conceptualize good, decent, good enough. We can't understand the beauty of the ordinary, of the common citizen that you don't know that opens the door for you, that as we killed God, that we have a bunch of problems that we didn't know we would have before that. Because we're unforgiven. Something Tim Keller wrote in a blog recently was that the morality of wokeism is a morality which has no forgiveness mechanism. There is no structure of forgiveness. Once you're canceled from your life because you said something on Twitter 10 years ago that you weren't supposed to say, that there is no forgiveness, that you are removed from your existence in the public square, and that there will be no coming back from that. Once you're gone, you're gone forever. Because we have no common sense, we have no common ground, and we have no integrity. There is no reason why if I don't like you, I should give you your rights back, or I should have never taken them to begin with. Because once God is dead, only power lives. But we live hurt and unforgiven. No matter how much social engineering we do, 
we know that we are limited, that there are things that hurt us that we cannot deal with. I think about these people in this commercial who are unintentionally tearing down the value of meritocracy. These people, as all people, have been hurt genuinely. We all have been hurt. But when we have no understanding, no mechanism for forgiveness, for forgiving ourselves for the ways that we feel anger or resentment towards those who have hurt us, as we have no mechanism to forgive those who have hurt us, even if they aren't sorry, that as the ability to forgive ourselves and them, we can no longer forgive ourselves for how limited we are, for how weak we are, for how limited we are. We cannot forgive ourselves, and we cannot forgive them. And the ruthless nature of our beliefs creates a reaction that as we believe reality does not forgive, we must then, to cope, to not kill ourselves, we must then create a fantasy where everyone is safe, where everyone is equal, where everyone is the same, and we're all happy and nice. We know it's not true. They know it's not true. Everybody knows it's not true. But when the option to that is a ruthless society which respects only power because God and forgiveness are a thing of the past, then we must create a utopia just to cope. Recently, I was listening to Lex Friedman's podcast, and he was talking to Dan Carlin. And I guess Lex Friedman's family is Russian, and uh, he talked about how many Russian people miss the Soviet Union, how they long for the days of the Soviet Union. And it impressed on me why people would miss something like that. Why do people miss a dictatorship, a totalitarian control? Why do they miss being controlled? Because I believe the number one thing which will feed the totalitarian instinct of the future is loneliness. That the more lonely we are as a people, the more open we are to an all-controlling state. That people, although people's lives were miserable under the Soviet Union, if that gave them something to fight for, someone to fight with, if it alleviated their loneliness then not being alone is better than being free. That the antidote to authoritarianism is friendship, is the fabric of the people in your life. It's your neighbors, it's your church, it's your town. All those little things you do to sew the fabric of the place that you live, of the small people in the small place that you live, that those things are what will hold us together. And that as we pull in to ourselves, as we give into a conception of the world which revolves around us, that we will have certain needs which will be unmet. And when an all-controlling state comes to try and meet those needs, we'll have a hard time saying no. If we get rid of our conception of what is perfect, of what is good, of what is pure then before long we won't be able to see what is nice, what is ordinary, what is decent. As C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Abolition of Man, 
the power of man to make himself whatever he pleases, ultimately, is really just the power of some men to make other men what they please.